Hey everyone, welcome to a new episode of Misaligned. We have reached our inaugural book club episode. So basically, Megan and I have no clue how this is going to turn out, but we will obviously know by the end of this episode what we need to do properly and what we need to stop doing, possibly. So we're going to do the book book club discussion after we talk about a little bit of news and then as usual we were we will have our recommendations provided I can continue to speak that long but before we dive into that Megan has a little thing she wants to remind you all about yes misaligned is part of the modern vinyl family of podcasts you can find all of the shows over at modern-vinyl.com And because of the Modern Vinyl family, let's talk about the actual Modern Vinyl podcast. It is the podcast that basically gave birth to all of the great podcasts in the family. And the most recent episode features Steve Bays from Hot Hot Heat. That's a good episode that you do not want to miss. Yeah, I listened to it already, and it's definitely a fun one to listen to, especially since Hot Hot Heat was like big way before they released you know this album that they're doing now and it's really interesting to see like what the band was up to in that kind of lull between their big success and now this is very very true they were the soundtrack to my middle school and early high school years too (laughs) yeah all right well Despite that being a great episode, we do have some sad news already today, albeit not as sad as some of the recent news we've been discussing lately, but Yellow Card has announced that this will be their final album. It will be their self-titled album coming out September 30th, if I'm remembering dates correctly. So, Megan, I know I am very sad about this. How do you feel? You know what? I'm bummed. I'm bummed because Yellow Card, you know, like Hot Hot Heat, actually, was a huge part of, like, my middle school, high school music listening experience. And I'm also bummed that the tour, their farewell tour, is not coming anywhere remotely near me unless I want to drive up to Baltimore, which I would rather not do. Looks like you just have to come visit me and we can go be sad about it together. Yes, let me just take a plane over (laughs) to California to be sad. Not, Not a big deal pretty easy thing to do these days this is also very true just fly on a jet plane get from point a to point b in like less than three hours and you'll be fine not less than three hours but nice try (laughs) yeah shows how much i fly yeah i think most of my flights were somewhere between four and a half and six hours going to and from philly so that's kind of close to you yeah that's true philly's only i think what two and a half three hour drive from where i am so Yeah, that's like nothing over here. You can drive straight north for like a good eight to ten hours and still be in California. Also very true. (laughs) All right. Well, on that note, we are going to start our book club discussion. We basically went through and broke this down by chapter. I mostly wanted to do it this way because this wasn't a book in the sense of it being like a novel. Chuck Klosterman did not talk about one topic the entire time this whole book so i felt like this was kind of just the easiest way for us to talk about literally everything that he talked about in his book in a somewhat coherent way although i would not call this a very coherent book necessarily because you know you have 15 pages of one thing and then the next 15 pages is completely different and if you guys did not follow along with us We read Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs by, as I mentioned, Chuck Klosterman. But Megan, why don't you start us off with the first chapter, which is called This is Emo. I think before I go into discussion about the first chapter itself, I do want to make a few little small quips here. Mm -hmm. Um, This book in particular was actually written in a style kind of like Rob Sheffield and Nick Hornby's books, uh, most particularly Songbook by Nick Hornby. And if you're familiar with Rob Sheffield's books, they almost always read, like, track lists from a mixtape. Right. And those books in particular focus on individual essays. Sometimes they tie a book together, but sometimes they don't. And sometimes, um, like the mixtape, there are interludes. And I know that you're going to talk about this towards the end, 
But pretty much all of the chapters, which are individual essays in this book, have some sort of small interlude linking the essays and, in a sense, the book together. So it's kind of like Nick's mixes in Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, for example. Instead of Nick rambling on about his failed relationship with Triss, it's actually something that gives you food for thought to think about when you go from one essay to the next. And I think that is something really important to remember because it is a bit scatterbrained, a little, but it kind of, once you read it all together, it makes a lot of sense. And I am definitely going to be talking a lot about how I kind of wish this book would get an update. Um, This book was originally released in 2003, and... I think your copy, and I know definitely my copy, is the updated version from 2004, which isn't really much of an update, but still. Right. I think our copy says, what, now with a new middle? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot can really change in 12 and 13 years. So a lot of my thoughts about this book are geared more towards, hey, what if it was updated? That sort of thing. Yeah, see, I kind of felt the opposite because to me it was almost hilarious to read, you know, his thoughts on how things would be today from this time period and to realize how completely wrong he was on so many things, but then to also see how on some instances he was right about how things would turn out, you know, and it was actually funny. I had just finished reading Life Moves Pretty Fast by Hadley Freeman And it was a whole book about 80s movies. Obviously, Life Moves Pretty Fast is a little snippet, I believe, from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And, you know, This Is Emo, the first chapter in this book, was a really great segue, basically, because it talks about 80s movies. And I had no idea that's what this first chapter was about. So that was just kind of a cool little personal thing for me that... You know, I go from reading an entire book about 80s movies to jumping right into this chapter. And it works out. Like, I know um, a lot of things that could be considered part of, well, for lack of a better term, mainstream emo, does stem from the 80s movies. Um, A big part of this was actually talking about classic John Cusack movies, including Say Anything, which features John Cusack as Lloyd Dobler which is apparently a character that women can't disassociate from his actual actor persona as a whole. Ergo, it falls into the topic of fake love, which kind of is actually what this chapter, this essay, was about. Right. Um, it was about relationships. It was about, well, love. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of his, a lot of these chapters were really about two things. He would basically talk about a specific topic or movie or sport or something and tie it in to life as a whole, basically. And that's what he started doing right off the bat with this chapter. I agree. And he does talk about the topic of fake love. And you know what? Speaking from a lovely lady perspective here, um, we do kind of all convince ourselves about fake love, especially from, and I quote this directly from the text, fictionalized portrayals of romance that happen to hit us in the right place at the right time. Which probably explains a lot about my love of Seth Cohen. <laughs> um, in a way, he's like my Lloyd Dobler, but he's not standing at my window holding a boombox blasting a Peter Gabriel song nor is he out buying me death cab tickets and making a Seth Cohen starter pack. Anyway, enough talk about the OC. Um, <laughs> I also thought it was pretty funny that in this particular essay, he brings up Coldplay. Uh, most importantly, he disses Chris Martin, the frontman of Coldplay, and he called him a blockhead. I think in some part, you can't really have this essence of fake love without mentioning some sort of, well, love song, which, as we all know, Coldplay is kind of known for. If you really think about it, I mean, like the stars are so yellow and he has the song about green eyes and just definitely the older Coldplay discography. I think that's more appropriate than their newer stuff. I think it was a good idea for him to start this book off with a topic that a good chunk of people would probably at least know something about, especially if you're obviously interested in pop culture and you're reading Chuck Klosterman in the first place. I feel like Say Anything is definitely like 
that 80s movie that a lot of people know. And I mean, while there are a lot of 80s movies people probably are aware exist, I think this one was a really great one to start with. It's definitely one of the most iconic ones. Yeah. And the next chapter takes a whole different topic and it's about the Sims. It, the, oh, yes. The chapter. Billy Sim. Yes. The chapter is Billy Sim. And just to let you guys all know, Megan typed in all caps at me in our Google Doc because I might be one of the very few people who have never played The Sims. I never found that game to be something I wanted to play. I was always into like the action sports games and like shooter games and all these sorts of like non real life games at all. So I mean, I, was I don't know. Too, the the but... Sims just never appealed to me. No one ever bought me The Sims as a gift, and I never played it at anyone else's house. That sort of thing. So I don't know how I avoided The Sims so much, but I managed to do that. I mean, it is a huge, huge cultural icon as well. I mean, I would play The Sims at my cousin's house on their computer because my mom didn't believe in actually having us have computer games. <laughs> um, I had several versions of The Sims for the Game Boy Advance, as well as my PlayStation and my GameCube, which the console games of the PlayStation and the GameCube actually had a better tie-in with the computer games themselves than the actual Game Boy games. Because in the Game Boy games, there's no playing God. Yeah, and despite not ever playing The Sims, I knew exactly what The Sims was and everything you could do in it just because so many people talked about The Sims and it really blew up and became this big thing. Oh, there's so many memes on the internet right now about The Sims. (laughs) Yeah, so even though I had never played the game, I found this chapter oddly entertaining because it was just so funny to me how much time and everything that people would put into this game and you know chuck mentions sitting there and playing it and having a kid tell him what he is and isn't doing correctly and i just found that very entertaining and i feel like that's something that could easily happen to you know anyone (laughs) i mean anyone who's played the sims understands that there really is no benevolent god this is something that gets discussed in this essay a lot and in a sense it kind of makes us question our own morality as humans um are we all secretly sims tied down to some weird process about living our daily lives no one will know that's how i take it um and after reading this chapter i actually did feel kind of embarrassed but yet slightly proud of myself of how many things i recognized from the games the sims have their own unique way of marketing plasma tvs and sofas and just it's it's weird um And, of course, there's also the Simlish language, which ultimately was translated into a few, um, or I should say a few popular rock songs were translated into Simlish for some of the games. Um, I know in the later years, I don't think I had The Sims around 2003, 2004. That might have been the era when I was playing it on a computer at my cousin's house. But I know on at least the PlayStation and the GameCube... Paramore had a song translated into Simlish, and I believe it was Pressure. And, um, oh, oh, important band. Reggie and the Full Effect. There we go. They had a song translated into Simlish. Interesting. Yeah. And this next chapter, it's called What Happens When People Stop Being Polite. It's all about reality shows. Well, the the real world, to be specific, and personally, I cannot stand the majority of reality shows that are out there. So I wouldn't say this is my least favorite chapter. I think I know what both of us found to be our least favorite chapter, and it happens to be the same one, and it comes later in the book because in our notes, Megan and I basically only have like one sentence about the chapter each, and that's about it. (laughs) So I would say this would be my second least favorite chapter probably out of this book, and it's simply just because... I don't like reality TV, so I had no interest in this. I mean, I've read it, and I'll basically read anything that Chuck Klosterman writes about, but that doesn't necessarily mean I will like the content or be aware of the content that he is talking about. True. And 
This chapter was actually about The Real World, which was a show that was definitely before my time. I never really got into The Real World. I was more of a fan of the celeb reality block on VH1, which had such great shows such as Rock of Love with Brett Michaels, Flavor of Love with everyone's favorite clock-wielding man, Flava Flav, uh, and The Surreal Life, which actually, uh, yeah, Flavor of Love was a spinoff of The Surreal Life because I guess he wanted to find love and somehow didn't find it with Brigitte Nelson, who he was on The Surreal Life with. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, so... This essay in particular was one that I would wonder what it would read like today. The real world is still going on, although it's not as big of a cultural phenomenon as it was 12, 13 years ago, honestly. The real world road rules challenges or whatever, I don't know. I guess those are still a thing. I see commercials every now and then on MTV about them, but they're not as widely publicized i guess you could say there's no real finding a connection with a character i think in the 90s you definitely were able to name care or name actual people on the show and connect better with them whereas today's day and age it's like okay just it's ushering in the age of big brother in a way right which he does allude to in the later part of the chapter and big brother i think just kicked off a new season on CBS, and I think that's overtaken the real world as an idea of what reality TV should be like. Yeah, and I think of. Big Brother is on like three nights a week right now or something crazy, which kind of I don't know. reminds me. I mean, I shouldn't say that I've never watched reality TV because I've watched, you know, like singing competitions and that sort of thing. But to me, that's a whole different category of reality TV. That A lot of this stuff, you know, it's obviously scripted and you kind of know where things are going to go before they happen whereas you know with competition shows you have people actually voting in the real world about this like survivor (laughs) well maybe not like survivor but i don't know it's weird like some of these personas in the different reality shows today are some that we learn to love like maybe snooki from jersey shore as obnoxious as she could be, she was actually slightly endearing. Um, or people that suck completely, I guess, like what's going on currently with The Bachelorette. Um, honestly, I still don't get the hype behind The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, so there's that. All I know is that Aaron Rodgers' younger brother is supposedly going to be the winner or something, Jordan Rodgers, and other than that, all I know is that he was just on Katie Nolan's podcast, Garbage Time. That's literally all I know about The Bachelorette. I don't know. My friends think <laughs> about it all the time. I'm just like, okay, you have fun with that. Yeah, my Twitter timeline gets a little crazy when The Bachelorette is on. I even have oh. like sports guys who have podcasts about The Bachelorette. It's very strange. Sounds it. But yeah, I do like how the Sim chapter flowed into this because it's it's the way of life of human or Sim, in a way, interaction, which... Actually, this is a good transition to our next chapter, which is every dog must have his day, every drunk must have his drink. I was really hoping I typed that correctly because I kept sitting here reading and I'm like, was that the actual title of the chapter? But I I think it was. And I also think we really, really needed this chapter to be all about Billy Joel. Who doesn't want a chapter entirely devoted to Billy Joel? Like, come on. He, besides Bruce Springsteen or like easily one of the most recognizable American singers in this current day and age that's still out touring and making quality music. And also, this wasn't just specifically about Billy Joel. It was about one specific album, Glass Houses, which features the iconic song, It's Still Rock and Roll to Me, which if you don't know, what is wrong with you? Do you live under a rock or something? Yeah, I think... I like Klosterman a lot when he's writing about music or sports because those are obviously the two things I enjoy the most. And I think he just has a certain way of writing about those two specific things, especially Mm -hmm. when it's basketball, that I just find highly entertaining. And this chapter really displayed that. Even though, you know, I don't always listen to Billy Joel, I probably can't name too many Billy Joel songs. It's just 
he's just not an artist I ever really got into, but I know who he is, and I know why this chapter became a chapter in this book. And interestingly enough, he actually was able to tie the whole Billy Joel thing into patriotism. Yeah. He literally started this essay about the months leading up to 9-11, and he sent out an email to a bunch of people about the concept of patriotism. Again, if this was a book released, or actually I should say written, written after 9-11, how would that have switched? How would people's opinions be different? And especially thinking about it in today's terms, I mean, patriotism still runs pretty high in this country with a lot of different people, and people are trying to tie it into politics, um, like certain politicians who have the skin hue of a Cheeto. But it's... I don't know. It's weird. It's hard to explain. You get what I'm saying, right, Deanna? Yeah. Okay. So now I don't feel as dumb. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, this chapter and the next one, which is Appetite for Replication, two music chapters back to back. I was pretty happy about this. And my main question to everyone is, have you ever read a story involving Axl Axl Rose that wasn't at least slightly entertaining? Because... You know, with Guns N' Roses, there's always wild stories. And Megan, I think you and I both really agree on this chapter that it was definitely one of the funnier ones in the book. Oh, totally. I mean, this chapter in particular talked about cover bands. Yeah. Like, it made me want to join a Guns N' Roses cover band. (laughs) I can hit Axel's high notes with ease, and I'm not ashamed of that. Um, but it did go into a discussion about why tribute bands are really important in society. Right. Some might be really silly. Some might just be straight up garbage, but there are others that try their hardest and just do what they do for fun. And that actually brings about that essence of what rock and roll should be like. And they all have heart. That's the important thing. Was there a time when Axel probably didn't have some heart in what he did? Possibly. No one really talks about the Chinese democracy era much. It's always his older stuff that's much more well-regarded. Right. Um, but there's something that just, I don't know, it makes me laugh about being a mock star. Like, you, sometimes it's just fun to go out and see the mock stars living it up. Uh, this is the part where if we could actually play popular songs, we could probably just play that really obnoxious Party Like a Rock Star song. And instead of it being Party Like a Rock, it, you could just say mock. Yeah, and I feel like with the tribute band he was talking about and talking to at times, depending on, you know, which section you were reading, but I feel like he picked a band that is actually good at being a tribute band because, you know, there's always going to be really bad tribute bands as well. And I have personally heard a few of those because (laughs) not too far from my house i mean it's still in garden grove they have a park basically down at the end of the city and they do a summer concert series and oftentimes they have at least one or two tribute bands playing and i believe when we went just to grab food from one of the food trucks or something it was a fleetwood mac tribute band and from where i was standing none of it it like it just did not sound good at all so i feel like with these mock stars obviously you have to be really good in order to be considered a mock star in the first place so i'm glad he picked a tribute band that you know was actually good and doing well and people enjoy them yeah like this was one of the i think actually the first chapter in the book where he actually just did some interviews with people he followed this group around for a few days too um, from their various shows, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, it would go from a chapter about Guns N' Roses and Axl Rose to a chapter where, called 10 Seconds to Love, where there's a line. You want to say that line? Sure. The very first line of this chapter just says, Merry Christmas, Juggalo. That's it. And I felt like that pretty much instantly summed up how well this chapter would go but weirdly enough it's not a chapter about juggalos or the insane clown posse or fago i'll correct <laughs> yeah it's actually about tommy and Pam's sex tape which yeah also sums up the chapter <laughs> yeah okay okay 
But apparently their sex tape is his weird version of It's a Wonderful Life that he somehow watches every holiday season. Weird. I know. Um, But the sex tape as a whole is used to be a sort of narrative about the unrealistic portraits of success based off of what American cultural ideas sometimes are. I think when this hit, the Tommy and Pam sex tape was one of the biggest sex tapes to rock the world of celebrity gossip. Uh, Honestly, I don't think there's any others that from that era that could really stand up to the test of time. I've never seen it, so I don't know. I've only seen the recaps on uh, the VH1. I love the... I think it was on I Love the 90s. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was that one. But anyway, going back to the current day and age, um, I wonder what his thoughts on the Kardashians would be. And would this essay be different if he had seen the Ray J and Kim Kardashian sex tape instead? I think if he wrote this now, it would more so be different because of Hulk Hogan. That too, with the Gawker suit. Yes, now, please note, I haven't seen any of these tapes that we're discussing, and I have, I have no not either. of, because that's, I don't know, something about that squicks me out. But I think if we're going by today's day and age, the story behind the Kardashians is really a perfect example of American culture and its unrealistic ideals of success today. Like, it basically said, oh, you can release a sex tape, even though your dad might be a famous lawyer who helped with the O.J. Simpson case, but you'll still get famous because of a sex tape and get your own reality show on E and oi. And then the Jenners didn't really have to do anything. They were just there by association. (laughs) Yeah, this is true. This is very true. And then you get a music video release that features people. I'm not even going to go about that. I'm so, ugh. I I have not watched it yet. I assume you're talking about Kanye's famous video. Yes. Let's let's not even go into that because that just (laughs) makes me so mad. And I, I haven't even watched it. I've just seen the stills. Yeah. Well, on that note, we'll move on to the next chapter because it features a writer you really enjoy. The chapter is George Will versus Nick Hornby. And this chapter really isn't about either of those people at all. It was about sports. <laughs> it's a misleading title, honestly. And I mean, so in this chapter, Closterman kind of goes into why he doesn't like soccer and how he ended up coaching peewee baseball and how, you know, the parents, specifically the moms, didn't like how he was coaching the kids because he was coaching the kids as if they were like a professional baseball team where he would sit kids on the bench and they just wouldn't play. But I think what I found most entertaining about this chapter was while soccer hasn't taken over America, it's definitely a lot more popular than I believe it used to be. And I think that's partially because of the success that our U.S. teams have had specifically the women's team in the Olympics and the World Cup and that sort of thing. Because personally, before that, I never really paid attention to soccer much at all because I was always, you know, playing basketball, watching basketball, watching football. And soccer was just kind of a sport that fell by the wayside. And I didn't really start paying attention, like I mentioned, until the women's team start of making a ton of noise and you know they were starting to get more media coverage and that sort of thing but do they get paid as much as the men's team no which is totally unfair and a totally different topic discussion idea for another day yeah don't even get me started on the wnba though because i think that's even more of a drastic difference there yeah that's true but yeah, like I read this chapter and I still don't fully get soccer no matter how many times my wonderful friend Zach has tried to explain it to me and no matter how many times that I actually watched it with him last year. In fact, before we started recording this, uh, we were talking about it and he's like, you should just remember that Will Griggs on fire. <laughs> and he sent me a link to this thing and basically the words are, Will Griggs on fire, your defense is terrified. Will Griggs on fire, your defense is terrified. There's a bunch of na-na-nas in there. <laughs> It's apparently a European phenomenon. I don't know. Anyway. But soccer, yes. Uh, I still don't get it even after my failed attempt to play soccer in kindergarten. I was bad. I'm just bad at sports. I think everyone's bad at sports when they're in kindergarten, to be fair. Yeah, true. (laughs) No, no, no. Actually, a close friend of my family's, their daughter, was really good at soccer when she was in kindergarten. In fact, she is the reason why I actually pay some attention to soccer now. Um, She plays for Penn State, and Penn State women's soccer 
actually made it to the College Cup this year in the finals. And amazing. They won. It was great. It's their first NCAA championship. Nice. I was there for the semis. And I can say that watching soccer in person was really, really exciting and energetic. And I kind of got it. But yeah, I still don't fully get soccer. <laughs> um, and I think soccer will rise in popularity. Um, it's risen a little since the early 2000s. Uh, right now, the NFL has been dealing with the whole CTE thing, and there have been a few scandals and growing disdain for the NFL commissioner, Roger Goodell, who is awful. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast there. Oh, yeah. But I do think that soccer might be the sport of the future, no matter how many times that Klosterman will talk about how it's not. He despises <laughs> it. I mean, really, the MLS is growing in popularity. Collegiate soccer is becoming a huge deal. And, oh, yes, to tie back his coaching thing, he would have benched me. He would have hated coaching me at Pee Wee anything, honestly. And it goes back to me being bad at sports. <laughs> and I'm sure my parents wouldn't even care if he benched me. Yeah, I think the main reason I started understanding soccer a lot more was because I had a group of friends in high school and they all were on the varsity soccer team. So I would go to their games. Also, we had the taco man come to the soccer games where you could just get dollar tacos. Okay. Anytime there's tacos <laughs> that cheap, I will be there. Yeah. So I I would go to watch my friends play soccer, but I would also go for tacos. So, you know, the two kind of went hand in hand there. So it worked out. That's not bad. Speaking of working out, this next chapter really seemed to work out wonderfully for you. <laughs> yeah, A chapter called 33, and it talks about basketball, which is just something I just don't pay attention to. I skimmed it when I first read this back in high school. I skimmed it again now because <laughs> shooty hoops. I mean, the main reason why I liked it so much because it went over, yes, basketball, but more specifically the Lakers-Celtics rivalry, which will forever be something I can read about just because I'm a huge Lakers fan, despite them not being great. I wouldn't even say not being great. They're absolutely terrible right now. And hopefully with Luke Walton as the new coach and a lot of cap space to pay a lot of people a lot of money, that will change. But the Lakers-Celtics rivalry was just something that was super important in basketball history because, you know, that's really one of the biggest rivalries in sports in general. I mean, back in the 50s or so, you had Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain, and they were basically the two best players you could possibly have in the NBA. So they were kind of rivals by default. But, you know, the Lakers and the Celtics are on complete opposite coasts. So they didn't play each other all that often. And the majority of the time, you know, these rivalries would come to life in the playoffs or in the finals more specifically. So I don't really know what else to say other than this probably, obviously, was my favorite chapter in this book. <laughs> I mean, sports, shooty hoops, woo, sports do the thing. Uh, and to go from a chapter, actually two chapters, I guess, about sports straight into one about, well, it's called porn. It's exactly what you think it'd be about. Didn't pull any punches with this title. <laughs> nope. Nope. Just straight up porn. I think this is obviously the chapter I mentioned earlier. That was probably both our least favorite chapter because it seemed pretty pointless. I mean... He was basically making a correlation that with porn came the advancement of technology when we had the internet. So he's basically saying technology and the internet advanced more probably because of porn, which I would not completely agree with at all. But I don't know. I yeah, really I don't, don't know. know. <laughs> I think that this chapter should have a theme song, and it should be The Internet is for Porn, which is from the musical Avenue Q. If you haven't seen Avenue Q, it's basically an adult version of Sesame Street. Like, it's got puppets and everything. And the soundtrack is full of really catchy songs, including The Internet is for Porn. Yeah. And I think it's the blue fuzzy puppet that sings that one. Don't quote me 100% on this one, but it is, it is definitely sung by a puppet. Right. And with this book 
being titled Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, obviously we were bound to get all three into the book at some point, and this next chapter, The Lady or the Tiger, is in fact the chapter where Cocoa Puffs are talked about, and cereal in general. Because <laughs> cereal is good. Like, it was an interesting segue between the chapter about porn to the chapter about cereal, because <laughs> he talked about how cereal was apparently created to help quell sex drives of people. I don't know. It's weird, but it goes back about the whole Kellogg's thing. Kellogg's was originally started as a bland religious cereal company um, because apparently the world was oversexed. I don't know. Um, It's, I don't know. I'm a very sugary cereal kind of person, so the Cocoa Puffs are a great thing. And I feel like this is also dated a little because in the past few years, there's been that push to make cereals a little more healthy more bland i guess yeah i noticed my new box of lucky charms is gluten-free which i mean i've had almost an entire bag of them already and they taste the same so i'm kind of questioning whether or not that is in fact true i don't know science can do nice things but the cartoon characters are still pushing these sugary but not maybe as sugary or gluteny cereals to the masses um, like, has anyone even seen the new Cocoa Puffs, Lucky Charms, or Tricks commercials right now? Those are really weird, honestly. I, I feel like I need to be on drugs to watch them. <laughs> honestly, they're, they're so trippy. And I realized that these aren't Kellogg's cereals. They're, I think, General Mills. But Kellogg's has Snap, Crackle, and Pop, who are the Rice Krispies guys, who actually are still selling their cereal on tv today but not doing it in a weird drug trippy kind of way i don't know what the advertising companies are wanting to do to us now (laughs) yeah so definitely a very different topic than the previous chapter and the next chapter is called being zach morris who is a character from saved by the bell for anyone who doesn't know and mix cds combined with Saved by the Bell felt like a very accurate and good combination for the time period that, you know, he was talking about. This is true. I mean, Zach Morris, Saved by the Bell, they're cultural icons that managed to stand the test of time, which is a lot like mixes themselves. Like, mixes can take on new and different forms every few years, like going from a mixtape to a mix CD to an actual mix playlist, but it, it has the same sort of sentiment behind it. And this essay in particular does go into the cultural look at why the show was pretty popular. But it also talks about the Tory paradox, which honestly was a character I forgot was even in this show until I read this chapter. I honestly haven't watched the show. I just kind of know who's in it and who's who and basically how their careers turned out. Why, I don't know, but I seem to know all these details. (laughs) I think you live under a rock. But, but I'm just going to say that. But um, it's interesting. It really is because it talks about the Tory paradox. So apparently a character named Tory was introduced. And this was when Kelly Kapowski and Jesse Spano somehow left the show for a little bit or their respective actors, actresses themselves. Um, so, yeah, it was like apparently they took place in the same timeline. I don't know. I don't know if... Kelly and Jesse actually knew who Tori was, because I know that Slater and Zach kind of wanted her affection as well. But what's interesting is that Kelly and Jesse made it back into the graduation episode when everything was said and done, but there was no Tori. Like, she had never existed. I don't know. It's weird. But let's talk about a whole modern update here. There is a Tumblr blog out there called Saved by the Bell Hooks, and it mashes up a lot of scenes from Saved by the Bell with quotes directly from Bell Hooks. If you're not familiar with Bell Hooks, she is a prominent um, Black feminist writer. A lot of her stuff I highly recommend, and I highly recommend checking out Saved by the Bell Hooks because it's interesting to see her quotes from her writing mashed up with scenes from the 80s and maybe early 90s. (laughs) Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, it's great. And what's funny about this next chapter title, it's called Sulking with Lisa Loeb on the plan- on the Ice Planet Hoth. This strangely ties into the last episode I did with Chris Lantinen, also known as Modern Vinyl Dad, which I have now coined him, so hopefully that will catch on with everyone. 
feel free to call him that. But I asked him what the weirdest record in his collection was, and he said it was a signed Lisa Loeb record. So we had a little conversation about her, and I kind of laughed to myself when I read this chapter title. (laughs) Well, if you want to laugh even more, she actually appeared on uh, the New Found Glory cover of Stay, I Missed You. Interesting. That is a thing. They actually have from the screen to your stereo that like whole series of covers that they did for movie songs and they recorded a song with lisa Lowe. it was great um but yeah enough about her let's talk about star wars gladly because we are giant nerds here at misaligned <laughs> stories of our lives but yeah i kind of thought this chapter was funny too because now that star wars you know has been rebooted and is this huge huge thing again It turns out it's cool to like Star Wars, and despite people who maybe liked it when the first trilogy came out and they were, you know, seen as nerds, now it's basically cool to be a nerd. It's cool to like all these superhero comic book movies and Star Wars and everything like that, and it's sort of just normal now. It is. I mean, what's interesting to note is that a year before this book was released, Attack of the Clones came out. And a year after its release, or I guess when it was updated, Revenge of the Sith came out. And this was actually the time period when I thought that Star Wars was overrated and that it was uncool to like it. But that's because my brother really liked Star Wars, so it kind of killed it for me a little. Uh, Fast forward 12 or so years, and it is cool to like it again. Like, I actually have a decent respect for the series. And it'd be interesting to see this rewritten with mentions to The Force Awakens, because we all know that that second trilogy was just straight up trash. (laughs) I don't care if Hayden Christensen is very just nice to look at. It was a trash trilogy. And of course, this chapter doesn't talk about that trilogy. It talks about the meaning behind the original trilogy. Right. Which people, it's still classic like you can name lines from it and people will be like yeah that's totally normal to just randomly quote star wars like that yeah and update in deanna's star wars life i have finished binge watching clone wars the animated tv show and i have been reading the star wars comics that are available on marvel unlimited so that's where i'm at right now and i have a star wars book sitting on my shelf that i still need to read and i own a star wars sweater actually (laughs) it was my brother's and i took it from him because it fits me but still And going on, we can talk more sci-fi things. Well, I wish. Uh, The next essay in this book was called The Awe-Inspiring Beauty of Tom Cruise's Shattered Troll-Like Face. Yeah, he still kind of has a shattered troll-like face today. Now that I've said that, the Scientologists are probably going to be after me. They already know where you are. Don't worry about it. Yeah, exactly. Like, I feel like this section would have been a little more interesting with more of a modern update, even even during the Katie Holmes era, honestly, because it could have talked about his Scientology leanings. It's a little shady. It's a little weird. It makes him who he is. Um, And thanks to the wonders of plastic surgery, did he or didn't he get it? (laughs) He might not have as much of a shattered troll-like face. Um, So there's that. But it isn't so much a chapter about Tom Cruise so much as it is about alternate realities talks about tom's movie vanilla sky but it also talks about memento and the matrix right and i mean what would a pop culture book be without a chapter referencing tom cruise i mean a pop culture book today would be talking about how he jumped on a couch on oprah (laughs) like that's everyone knows about that yeah well this next chapter it's called toby over moby and it's about the Dixie Chicks, and country music in general. I know we talked about this really not too long ago. There's a sentence in this book, and it says, The most wretched people in the world are those who tell you they like every kind of music except country. People who say that are boorish and pretentious at the same time. Okay, so that's two sentences, but whatever. And yeah, it's in there. We literally did just have a conversation about this how you said you were this person before but casey musgraves has kind of changed your mind yeah well even before casey musgraves like honestly i was that boorish pretentious asshole in high school that would say i liked everything except country because i was in an area surrounded by it but my tastes have grown i listen to more folksy stuff i'm sorry i'm an asshole (laughs) i i apologize for my snobbery 
back in the day. But it also goes into a discussion about teenagers and their musical inclinations. This is always going to be a topic of discussion no matter what the era is. Right. And, I mean, another sentence from this is, you can't really learn much about a person based on what kind of music they happen to like. It's 100% a true statement. As a personal, like, anecdote here, I will never, ever forget the look on my classmates' faces when I gave a presentation during my sophomore year of college about attending a metalcore concert. I was wearing an Abercrombie sweater, jeggings, and Uggs while giving this presentation, and basically the faces were priceless. They just kind of were like, oh, this girl, she dresses, like, kind of preppy, but yet listens to people who scream. We can't (laughs) judge her anymore. Right. It is a horrible personality descriptor to kind of go off of what someone listens to because you honestly, like, you wouldn't know. Yeah, I feel like if you took a survey and just asked questions about, you know, what genres people like and what artists people like, it would be so all over the board that you couldn't pinpoint any one thing about that person based off of their music taste alone. It's, it's very true. And it does... I thought it was interesting that it kind of pit the Dixie Chicks against Van Halen. (laughs) I think that those are two groups that you really can't compare and contrast. Yeah. Usually they're being pitted against Toby Keith. Yeah. Although I will say in high school, I did enjoy the song Goodbye Earl by the Dixie (laughs) Chicks. So there's that. Yeah. And he even talked about, you know, how many teenage girls there were at this concert. And it kind of surprised him because... A lot of times when people think of country music, they just think of a bunch of white adults going to these shows. White adults drinking up a storm. Yeah, well, that that happens at all country shows. I can confirm that. (laughs) I have friends who've been to country shows. I've seen their pre-gaming pictures. It's great. Yeah, I was at one with my parents and this lady was literally just like stumbling about and she almost like fell backwards into me and I kind of put my arms up and like, you know, one of the workers was right there and she was just like, oh dear. (laughs) That's why Red Solo Cup, I'm telling you that song just changed everybody's perception about stuff. But anyway, we go from a chapter about, well, musical inclinations with the teenagers and the Dixie Chicks and everything Two, this is Zodiac speaking. No, it's not about astrology. No, sadly, there aren't many references to the Zodiac killer. But it is about serial killers. Right. And people who knew serial killers. Like, this is another chapter featuring a bunch of interviews with people about knowing serial killers. Yeah, and it's clearly, hands down, the most serious chapter in the book. Because, you know, Chuck Klosterman's usually pretty good at making light of things. But he chose not to go that route here because this really isn't something that people try to make light of. It's like no one is going around making fun of, you know, the Manson murders or that sort of thing. Or John Wayne Gacy Jr. Right. And I don't know about you, but I have watched a lot of stuff about serial killers. I've read quite a bit about them. And I mean, I watch Criminal Minds, which is based off of you know, real life serial killers more often than not. And it's just kind of something I find interesting, not necessarily like interesting in a good way. It's just kind of more so from a why do these people do this kind of thing. And there's a museum out in LA. It's literally called the Museum of Death. And it basically has, you know, videos about a ton of these serial killers and i know in this chapter he mentions richard ramirez who was the night stalker out here in california in la area to speak to be specific and it's just always i don't want to say fascinating because that sounds like the wrong word to use but how these people work and how the people who know them see them is an interesting thing to read about this is true remind me to ever go to that museum (laughs) if i ever go to la it's really hard to find so you could drive by and miss it and be fine oh see that's fine promise we're not going to become serial killers here but in today's terms i kind of want to know what closterman would think about ted cruz being the serial killer or the zodiac killer i'm sorry ted cruz is the zodiac killer he would probably write a great hilarious essay about that right 
if you really think about it, that would be a pretty funny one to read. Yeah, I mean, po- politics can be funny in general, so. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'd love to get his thoughts on those. But anyway, going on, reading. The next chapter is actually something worth reading. It is called All I Know is What I Read in the Papers. Yeah. And if you're a budding journalist and want to read any essay out of this book, I highly recommend this one. Yeah, I had a little trouble with one of the sentences I was trying to type out in my notes. It's, I weirdly like reading writers who write about writing. I was like, that, I'm probably going to screw that up if I don't just read it word for word for you guys. So, because that's just too many times you're using different types of forms of the word write. <laughs> it happens. I mean, in high school, this struck a chord with me, and it still does today. And I mean, I am I will ramble on a little bit about this because my journalistic tendencies and leanings, but he is completely right when he says that the media is a completely reasonable thing to hate. Honestly, have you seen the skewed coverage on the major news networks about current events or lack thereof? I am sure that before this week, there was very little coverage about the Brexit decision or even Brexit in general. But he does also make an extremely solid point when he says that everybody seems to be concerned that journalists are constantly trying to slip their own personal or their own political and philosophical beliefs into what they cover. Right. This virtually never happens. And he's right. It, it is actually really hard to do that. To quote one of the reporters I worked with during the summer of 2012 during a radio ship or a radio station internship, I should learn to speak better. <laughs> um, but to quote the reporter, it's really hard to put your own personal bias or spin into a 30 or 45 second reader. When you're not working in broadcast news, this probably does make sense. Uh, if you're working in print news, it's actually easier to put your own spin onto things. Um, but it's more subtle because you have to know where to look. If it were mainstream articles on like the front page or something, chances are high there wouldn't be any sort of weird political agenda behind them. Go into the op-ed section, which honestly I kind of skim because sometimes it's just the opinions of people get on my nerves. Um, it's that sort of thing. You really have to know where to look. And I mean... He also talks about how celebrity journalism is a new kind of meaningless and as someone who likes to read celebrity gossip sites, it's true. I mean, there's only so many pictures of like new couples I can take. Shout out to Taylor Swift and Tom Hiddleston. That is really just meaningless and pointless and why is this a thing? But despite that, he also says that newspapers are for people who don't read or something along those lines. Right. And it's it's true, yes, and no. I still read the newspaper, but once again, journalistic tendencies in me. Um, it's just a... I don't know. Yeah. I just have a lot of thoughts and feelings on this. <laughs> I mean, I also thought it was a great look into a writer's thoughts about journalism because most of the time... You're hearing thoughts from, you know, the readers about journalism and what's being reported and that sort of thing. So they're not looking at it from a writer's standpoint. They're looking at it from a consumer standpoint and a reader's standpoint. But if this is something you're interested in, like talking or sorry, reading writers who write about writing, basically, and you don't want to buy this entire book just for one chapter, I have read On Writing by Stephen King, which is a really great look into his writing process. And while it's not the same as journalism because he's just writing, you know, fiction novels, it's still really good about, you know, formulating an idea and how you take that and make it your own, basically. And I also recently bought Bird by Bird, which is by Anne Lamott, and On Writing Well by William Zinser, I believe is how you pronounce that. I could be wrong. I always spell it incorrectly, too, because I think it's, you know, the S's and the N are flipped. So, yeah, it's Zinser. Okay. Well, those are three books about writing that I often find people highly recommend, and so I'm going to recommend them here as well. But we're going to move on to the next chapter, and it's called I, Rock Chump, 
And this is, in fact, about music as well. It's also the penultimate chapter in this book. And I think it's interesting how Klosterman can change up his approach to writing because, you know, this had basically timestamps and he would write about something happening at that specific time. And he was still able to keep his writing style relatively the same and, you know, keep it as witty as usual and that sort of thing. So I thought it was a nice little change up to the rest of the chapters. And this chapter is a lot easier to digest um, than the chapter that follows it. And of course, in our notes here, I just have one sentence because literally this is all I took from it was how to attend a music conference about pop music and experience it without rocking. <laughs> like, that is actually pretty interesting when you think about it, because pop music does have some roots in rock and roll and vice versa. But if you're thinking about it from a purely pop perspective without that rock and roll thing, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, and I just want to make a note that all of these chapters had, you know, a little something extra at the end of them. And... I feel like those are kind of more of a special thing to just get to read and enjoy. So we didn't really talk about those. And obviously, if we didn't, I don't believe we mentioned it at the beginning. But hello, spoiler alerts for the entire book, except for those little end blurbs at the end of the chapters. But well, I mean, I did say that they kind of tie in the essays together to make it as a whole. Right. I just mean we haven't, you know, explicitly talked about the content oh, of yeah. those right now because. At times, it you would read a chapter and then you would read this little piece at the end and you were kind of like, what does this have to do with anything almost? But as you continue to read them, you know, it's like something clicks and it starts to make more sense. But with this last chapter called How to Disappear Completely and Never Be Found, there wasn't one of those at the end of this. So I was a little disappointed because I w found myself looking forward to those little blurbs and everything. And this was a chapter that was all about religion, which I am not religious and I don't really have an interest in it. I also know very little about it. So this just kind of felt like a very bland ending to me, I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's about evangelical Christianity, like the fanatical Christians, religion. Woo. Insert all the fanfare here. Uh, when I first read this in high school... It garnered my interest only because I had tried to read the Left Behind series solely because my friends were reading it and just raving about it. But I was re trying to read it as an agnostic who bordered on atheism. And today I still maybe have a less atheistic, I guess you could say, uh, views on religion. I've moved more solely into the agnostic way of thinking. So that's not bad. But um, yeah, that's the perks of growing up in a small town with a lot of churches. Um, let's see. Oh, yes. Yes. This one I would love to see updated for the modern masses because we're in an era where Christianity, especially of the evangelical kind. Hey, Ted Cruz. Um, it seems to be overtaking the news cycles like conservatism, both in terms of politics and religion actually makes me want to disappear completely and never be found. Much like the uh, end blurb at this chapter that you so wanted to read. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, I know you really want an update to this book, but I feel like the way he writes, it's like every piece he does is almost an update on, you know, his pr prior writings. And I know his most recent book well, not the most recent one, because one just came out literally like this month. But his book, oh, yeah. I Wear the Black Hat, is an essay collection book, I believe. And I feel like without reading that, I can't definitely say I would like an update to this book because who knows, it could end up being just like that book, which came out a f couple years ago, last year, maybe even. Um, so I feel like because he's writing these in an essay type format, I wouldn't necessarily want an update to it. I just might want new essays about similar topics or, you know, the same ideas, but with different people or movies or that sort of thing. 
That makes sense. So I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't necessarily need it to be an update of this book. Basically, I just want Clusterman to write more things. True. So, I mean, despite not liking a couple of the chapters, notably, well, the the last one I read, but I was just kind of indifferent about it. But the reality show chapter and the porn chapter, I just gave it a four out of five because... I kind of knew going into this that I would enjoy his writing because I've read his stuff before. I read his articles when he was helping out over at Grantland and writing for them here and there. I know you gave it a slightly lower rating than I did, but three and a half. You don't you don't like sports, so that's a little more understandable. I mean, I like sports, just not a lot of mainstream sports. (laughs) You like different sports, not the ones. Yeah, I like oddball sports and football. But it is, it is a good book. Like, it's an interesting look into, well, the early 2000s, honestly. Even going into a lot of discussion about the 80s and the 90s. It's definitely worth checking out, I think. Yeah, and he now has nine books, I believe, because I have eight of them and I don't have the new one just yet. So chances are we may end up revisiting Chuck Klosterman because, you know, he writes all about pop culture and we're trying to keep this in the pop culture and music realm. But... The next book for July is Your Song Changed My Life by Bob Boylan, and this is obviously just going to be strictly a music book, and I would like to thank Megan for sending me her extra copy of it for a whole like $3 or something. So that is basically why we chose to do this book next, because we knew we both already had it, and it's a relatively new book. Yes. In fact, I did write about it for Modern Vinyl as my Modern Vinyl Recommends piece. I think it, it'll it be a good read. Like, I think it reads a little like a 33 and a third book. Right. Um. So if you want to jump in on this, I think we should, we'll, we'll try to be a little more proactive on the Twitter account in terms of reading, giving updates about where we are on the book. And you can maybe follow along with the hashtag misaligned reads. Yes. I was also just really horrible about reading this Closerman book in a timely manner. I literally finished it yesterday and read probably half of it or 75% of it within the last week. So that is partially my fault. I will probably have to start this book a lot sooner. So the last week in July, I believe, is when we will be doing this episode for this book and Don't hold me to that, though, because I currently cannot count the weeks in my head to make sure that is right. But real quick, we are going to do recommendations and wrap this up. Megan, do you have anything for us this week? I do. The new Avid Brothers album called True Sadness. It came out on Friday, and I know it's definitely available to stream on Spotify. There are definitely a few vinyl packages available. Um, It's... The familiar Avid Brothers sound that everyone has come to know and love, mixed with some more modern electronic leanings. It's a fun album, I think. Yeah, I think I added it to my Apple Music collection because I've been trying to get better at doing that on Fridays. I'll go through the new albums list and kind of add things that I know I should listen to. But I have two quick recommendations this week, both of which basically we've already talked about. Um, Go listen to some Yellow Card. The band is breaking up. Megan and I are bummed about it. Just go listen to Ocean Avenue, Southern Air, whatever you want. You know, they have a really solid catalog. So there's a lot to check out there. And my second recommendation is to check out some of the Star Wars comics if you are a fan of Star Wars. Obviously, if you are not a Star Wars fan, there's probably no reason to do this at all. But personally, I've been using Marvel Unlimited to do that, which it typically runs six months behind the current issues. But for me, you know, there's so much to read in the Marvel catalog that I don't even mind. You'll get about 13 or 14 issues of the just plain Star Wars series and Darth Vader. So there's at least, I would say, a good 30 to 40 comics based around Star Wars and this new comics universe they're creating here that you can read through marvel unlimited and i'm sure if you go to marvel's website you can get a free month if you just want to try it out i mean if you like comics marvel unlimited is basically 70 bucks for the entire year and if you figure current marvel comics are going for six bucks a piece that's basically like buying 11 or 12 
single issue comics and you can read way more than that in a year on Marvel Unlimited. So I know I've recommended Marvel Unlimited before, but now I'm recommending something specific within Marvel Unlimited. So I'm trying not to repeat myself too much here, but that's all we have for you guys today. Like I mentioned, next book is Your Song Changed My Life by Bob Boylan. We will put an Amazon link in there for you guys to go pick up an ebook or a physical copy, whatever you prefer. But until then, thank you guys for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day.